This is Keeping It 101, a Killjoy's introduction to religion podcast. In 2022-2023, our work is made possible through a UVM REACH grant, as well as a loose AAR Advancing Public Scholarship grant. We are grateful to live, teach, and record on the current ancestral and unceded lands of the Abenaki, Wabanaki, and Akosisko peoples. And as always, you can find material ways to support Indigenous communities on our website. What's up, nerds? Hi, hello. I'm Megan Goodwin, a scholar of American religions, race, gender, and politics. Hi, hello. I'm Elise Morgenstein First, a historian of religion, Islam, race and racialization, and South Asia. And we have new mics. <laughs> so excited. We have new mics. We're very excited. And you know what, Megan? I feel a little self-conscious because my entire voice wants to drop into an NPR register just because mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. big, fancy, padded microphone is up in my biz. Yeah. I'm Sylvia Poljoli. And this is whatever show she hosted. I don't know. I was there a long time ago. <laughs> anyway. I'm kind of doing like an SNL in the 90s, like sweaty balls moment, but that's a different <laughs> I think universe. you mean the delicious dish. Neat. And that's exactly what I mean. I mean, I only remember the punchline because it's me, but. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I remember all of it because those were the calls I was fielding while I was at the front desk of WBUR Boston's NPR news station. So when the lady called for the recipe about the turducken, which I had never heard of at the time, it it struck a note, a oh. chord. Let's uh, let's move on from sure. job related trauma and sure. move into our personal traumas because nerds, we have a so glad you asked. That is actually an amalgam of many questions. Mm-hmm. Some of y'all asked Megan and I to talk about our own mental and physical health and ability and how it informs our research since in dribs and drabs over the last two years, we've said things like our bodies don't work. <laughs> Others of you have asked us to talk about how ableism impacts religious practice, just as a general query. Dr. Emily Gravitt asked us to talk broadly about religion and disability. And because you all asked all of those questions... We have an episode to record. Why I'm so glad you asked. We sure do. We care a lot about this question and about disability because we are humans with bodies. And all bodies will eventually be subject to rot, seeing as how we are literal sacks of meat. Always my favorite visual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a terrible operating system. You are welcome. I also want to say out loud that I care about this question specifically because I am, at least on paper, I'm finding myself qualifying this already, but also in material ways that I really struggle to talk about and frankly admit even to myself sometimes I am disabled. So talk about religion and disability is both really important and really hard for me, which I guess is the job. Uh, let's fucking go. It is the job. And I'm going to do that thing that best friends do where they say, I'm really proud of you. Hey, thanks. You're welcome. Let's start simple, Goodwin, since I feel like both of us are both going to get uh, emotionally invested in this question. Goodwin, we always say that religion is what people do. Mm -hmm. Way back, way back in season two, (laughs) when we thought the pandemic might be over imminently, Mm. we said that if religion is what people do, and people invariably have bodies. Yes, all of them. Then we need to care about things like race, gender, and sexuality, because those are also things that people do and have done to them in their bodies. Yeah, that's correct. Now, ability we didn't touch, because we needed a thesis statement for season two, and we were already doing way too much, because what kind of morons put gender, race, and sexuality into one, like, eight-episode season? Uh, Us morons. Those are the morons. Us 100%. But- (laughs) We're here to rectify that because be- mm-hmm. people have bodies, because bodies come in all shapes, sizes, capabilities, health statuses, and more. 
uh, a framework of disability is yet another thing we have to take seriously if we take religion seriously. Religion is what people do. People do religion in their bodily homes. Their bodies demand care. They demand attention and accommodation. Yes, good, got it, check. So in short, we can't actually think about the range of human experience of, with, around, in, through religion without thinking about ability and disability. We just can't, can we? No, no, we cannot. So to reiterate, we are so glad you asked Mm -hmm. about our own bodies, how religious bodies navigate ability, and broadly, so that ask the questions that we can think about religion and disability with y'all. Yeah, that's that's a lot, Megan, for one little episode. (laughs) Correct. So as usual, I think what we're doing here is given like a taste of these huge topics and we're going to point folks to where they can get fuller meals in the homework later. Dope. Yes. Good. All right. Let's start at my favorite place, which is to say definitions. (laughs) Always, always a stone cold enthusiastic. It's like, you know, she give she's giving melatonin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love melatonin and definitions, so let's set it. All right. So Goodwin, here's what we need to define. What do we mean when we say disability? What do we mean when we say ableism? What do we mean when we say accommodations or inclusion? Okay. Yeah, sure. Great. Cool. Come out the gate like this. Fine. Good. Uh, I expect it by now, but also still the nerve, the gall, the absolute gumption. Fine. Fine. I will define disability just real quick. Cool. Um, There is no one definition because disability is a concept, but it's also a legal category in the United States among other nation states. So like very, very broadly, disability refers to mental and physical realities that might limit or impede or structure one's movements, senses, or abilities. In terms of how activists and theorists and people living with disabilities talk about it, disability is often framed as any so-called deviation from normative assumptions about movement, thinking, emotional processing, and just the way our brains work or are supposed to work. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, so as a framework of analysis, disability or disability studies is asking us to think about how bodies move, sense, operate in the world, how they think, how they process, which bodies we value as so-called good, normal, active, industrious, strong, and all of that is in scare quotes. Yep. And disability or disability studies are asking us to question why and how those rules came to be. Mm-hmm. It's also asking us to think about why we're so comfortable ignoring disability or blaming disabled people for their disabilities or why we are so set on one way to learn, to think, to move, to be in the world is the only way that we can actually do anything, right? So the idea that there is a way to get from the first floor to the second floor and that if you do not get up that way, you are somehow wrong, different, other, disposable, or just stuck on the first floor. <laughs> like that's right. just your fault. No right. second floor for you. We're we're at, disability studies and the framework of disability as a concept of analysis is asking us to ask why the fuck is that? Yeah. Yeah. If this were Scooby Doo, this episode would be ripping the mask of disability off to reveal you guessed it, straight white cis Protestantism. Will I find a way to make this conversation about graham crackers? I most certainly will, nerds. You stay tuned. All right. Stay on target, Mary. We're still defining our terms, goddammit. Fine. Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. You also asked about ableism, which in its simplest terms is the assumption that all bodies should function at 100% of what we assume is normal all of the time. If your body needs help, that's you're too bad. 
I am being snarky here because of course I am, but I also really want y'all to hear that. We live in a society, which means we must care for and protect each other. And we all have bodies made of meat, which I have already stated categorically is a terrible thing to build an operating system out of because it has a 100% fail rate. And it starts breaking down immediately upon launch, much like your iPhones. But I'm ching. Thank you. Folks lucky enough not to have to confront these incontrovertible facts, uh, they fucking suck at acknowledging these said facts, much less making space for bodies to be different from one another and need different things. So we see ableism at work when systems and people decide that making space for those bodily differences is just, it's just too much work. So, oh well. We see ableism at work in, for example, what's now the United States when systems that are supposed to make it possible for you to access medical care, a thing that 100% of all meat bodies need at some point in their lives. When those systems become inaccessible through cost or distance or frankly, indifference. Insurance, which already fucking sucks, is getting more expensive because 2.5 years into a pandemic, more people need medical care. What the actual fuck? So ableism assumes that if your body, which includes your brain, BT-dubs, isn't normal, then you as a person are less deserving of care or consideration or humanity. You are less capable of making your own decisions or having autonomy less capable of being a productive member of society, please hear both the scare quotes and my slash our absolute disgust at that capitalist bullshit, which is, of course, white Western Euro-Protestantism with the serial numbers filed off. Ableism means we work while we're sick because even being thought or perceived as disabled is frankly dangerous. Ableism like racism and sexism also makes someone's level of ability or disability all you need to know about them. Ableism makes ability the truth of ourselves, makes disability the defining quality of a person or group of people. Ableism is, for my part, why I came out as queer a fucking decade before I came out as disabled, why I and so many of my neurodivergent colleagues and friends didn't get the help they needed earlier in life. And ableism honestly makes needing help a problem and a personal failing. Ableism should suck my dick. But ableism should not enjoy it. No, it doesn't get to enjoy it. No. No, ableism can suck my dick also, (laughs) but not enjoy it. Ableism sucks a lot and is so omnipresent, even in ways that, um, that most folks don't think about, which I guess we'll come back to later on as we get into some of, some of the the meat of this episode. But I, I want to stick on definitions because my job as executive functioning (laughs) chief chief officer of executive functioning is to keep us on track. So we have one more thing to define, which is accommodations and inclusion, which I'm lumping together here for, for time. And Mm -hmm. because I actually, in a political way, want those things to be the same. Yeah. So would you like to take a stab or do you want me to? I, I will try. Uh, accommodations are also one of those tricky words because it's both a framework. How do we make adjustments to our teaching, to our buildings, to the way we literally accommodate folks with varying degrees of disability or ability? But accommodations is also a legal framework, at least in what's now the U.S., and it centers on employment law or education usually, which is really tricky because that means the onus to prove disability is tied up in forms and paperwork, often medical diagnosis, often institutional surveillance in really creepy, gross ways, I say from personal experience. But it also means that those formal paperworks and diagnoses can be held against you later on, which is sadly a common experience for disabled people including me. Uh, I filed for FMLA leave last fall in large part because my university really pushed me to, which is a longer story. And while Massachusetts is among the best states in the country to need medical leave in, my employer covered the the time that I was on leave at 100% of my salary. Federally, your employer is required to cover 0% of your salary while you're on medical leave. You're allowed to take it, 
but they don't have to pay you. So just stop there for a moment. So, okay, I filed for FMLA leave. I truly had a best case experience while also being deeply traumatized. And P.S., we're two years out from a presidency that actively tried to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Getting rid of the ACA would be disastrous for a lot of reasons, but the idea of being out in these streets with a documented pre-existing condition and a documented request to accommodate that condition, frankly, kept and keeps me up at night. So yeah, accommodations are how we think about meeting disabled folks where they are. Hey, did you know, for example, that you can anticipate and plan for common disabilities in your event or your classroom, even if your students or your participants aren't registered with the institution or university? Because you can. But Accommodations are also a legal category in the context of employment and education. Certain protections require folks to jump through hoops to prove they need, deserve help, which is gross. That's fucking gross. Yeah. And talking about accommodations in education is a different day, but Mm -hmm. uh, all of you should be doing universal design learning strategies because you should. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I piggybacked accommodation with inclusion on purpose because I want... I want them to go together. Lots of activists, uh, particularly disabled activists, really want us to stop thinking about how we can accommodate, which is like a cousin to tolerate Mm -hmm. disability. Rather, think about how we can lower the barrier of access to as many people as possible. So how do we include as many people as possible given any given setting? So let me give an example. You just said the FMLA. Uh, FMLA in my universe of parents is usually what women use to take maternity leave. Yeah, because and pregnancy is a disabling event, according to your insurance. That's exactly right. And it's also being a lady is a pre-existing event because at any moment you could get pregnant and thus be disabled. So uh, aside from that example, which everyone, you should be doing drugs about. Yeah, do a lot of drugs about that. And obviously, uh, women are not the only people who can get pregnant or are affected by this, but uh, it, they are clearer terms in the insurance world of forms. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite go-tos on how disability is conceived is the obvious one, right? Like in the U.S., we use an image of a person in a wheelchair, just a stick figure in a wheelchair as our symbol for either handicapped or disabled, depending on where you are and what kind of phrasing you use, but often in regards to parking and other things that require, wait for it, access. The movement to make sidewalks usable for folks in wheelchairs and other assistive devices was one of the most visible campaigns of the early disability movement, which in the United States is um, just celebrating the 25th anniversary of the ADA. But like, not only wheelchair users use sidewalks or benefit from this movement, which got ramps and on sidewalks and like curbs being lowered. For example, parents using strollers able-bodied grown-ups, elders who find the step up kind of hard. In this example, not just benefit from the accessibility, but also we can conceive of those people, a parent with a stroller, uh, an elder with a mobility issue. We can conceive of them as being limited and impeded by ableism, Mm -hmm. not necessarily by disability, right? right? So we see that those things are different. Which is to say that disability as a theoretical framework thinks about access regardless of the user. It's not saying, let's make this accessible for paraplegics. It is saying, how do we lower the barrier for participation across the board? Yes, for paraplegics, but also elders, moms with prams, me on a bad arthritis day, you name it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we include as many people as we can while maybe accommodating people with specific needs? But not only those people, all people. Yeah. Let's say that again one more time because it's important. All people benefit when we prioritize access. 
Yes. All of us. It's better for all of us. It should be enough that it makes it better for any of us. But in reality, we all benefit when our world is as accessible as it can be. So this conceptual framework, which has been built by disabled activists and scholars, is often referred to as CRIP-LIT, and it comes from disability studies and queer studies, places where folks are navigating and resisting the labels abnormal and normal. They're pushing those boundaries. It's a movement to center disabled and increasingly chronically ill, mentally ill, and neurodivergent voices as a way to push back on ableist ideas about the world. There is infinity more to say about this, but we want to get to the religion of it all. That is our beat. So, uh, <clears throat> hey, Arf, why do we care about crypt theory and religion? Well, shocking no one. I have three, three main reasons. The reasons were threefold. Yes. Number one, all religions already address disability, whether we think they do or not. Now, they don't always address them well mm. or positively or kindly, mind. They're certainly not addressed evenly. Mm. Disability is a hallmark of human life, and our religions are already thinking about it. So if we skip this, we miss shit. Correct. Number two, people with bodies of all abilities participate in, including leave, religious traditions, and are themselves making sense of ableism within these spaces. So again, if we ignore these folks, we miss the story. And and third on my list is... um is us. We're going to talk about ourselves in this yeah. section about yeah. our experience as religious people with uh, varying levels of ability. Mm -hmm. So let's actually dive in. Let's address disability. Let's address point number one, how religions already address disability. Now, nerds, well, like this is a drive-by, okay? We're doing like some real That's shouts here. It's not enough, but you know, well, homework. Mm -hmm. So for me, sometimes I, I'm stuck on how this looks really shitty. Right. So mm. in Abrahamic tradition, disabilities, particularly physical, um, what's perceived to be physical disabilities are punishments from God. Yeah. It's a fairly common perspective in Abrahamic traditions. Or you get this shitty uh, place where disabled people are meant to be more pious. So like yeah. disabled people are uncommonly pious, are uncommonly good because look at what they have to manage. And they're still so brave or grateful yeah. Yeah. or noble. This particular bit where like disabled people as special on some sort of like piety pedestal is fairly common, but I'm going to call it out, especially in both Christian medieval philosophical traditions and modernity. No, oh, yeah, no, like contemporary, there's a whole gross corner of the internet where particularly Christian, but not only Christian folks, nope. are using the language of angels to describe yes. particularly their disabled children, which uh -huh. makes me want to peel my face off with my fingernails because they're not angels. Please they're children with disabilities. And also, I don't want you to be an exposed meat face. <laughs> well, then the world needs to get better. That's, okay, those everybody. are my conditions. You, you heard it here first. <laughs> get better or exposed meat face. <laughs> those are your options. Yeah. So, and sometimes we see disability, particularly in Abrahamic traditions, and I'm staying there because it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, we see disability, uh, particularly around mental illness, being lauded in ways that I'm uncomfortable with, right? Like healers or speaking with gods or speaking in tongues or being touched. So folks that we might today say they're having struggles with mental illness and might could use some support or medication or community. It's like, no, they're a prophet. They're a seeker. They're communing with God. 
Yeah. And so in some traditions that gets lauded and in other traditions or in other settings that gets medicalized and institutionalized. But we see religions understanding disability from the textual level. So like, this is not new. This is like, you know, ancient texts. Well, and there's also a flip side to that, right? Because uh, folks that I'm in community with and uh, folks uh, that I have studied have ecstatic religious experiences, have conversations with the divine. And the flip side of that is having those experiences dismissed, denigrated, pathologized as mental illness. So this is a complicated space and I'm just going to assign some readings. I think is what's going to happen there at the end. Yeah. I mean, and it's also a really racist space, right? Mm -hmm. Very racist and sexist. One of the spaces where um, modern and medieval philosophers deride Islam as a false religion is calling Muhammad an epileptic. And therefore he is uh, broken and damaged and a false prophet. Now, I want you to hear that all of that is fucking fucked up. Yeah, that's gross. It, it works in both ways. And so I think, yeah, it's complicated. Let's just mm -hmm. leave there. Yeah. The other way that traditions have already addressed disability is sometimes it actually looks like access and help. So um, I actually went to this talk recently that like my shul did on this like disability access thing. And like, I have, I have lots of critiques, but the thing that I thought they did well was in the Jewish tradition, there's this moment where Aaron and Moses and Moses has this like severe uh, speech impediment and Moses is embarrassed to talk, but he also has to lead his people and his brother Aaron helps him out. Right. So the idea here is that Aaron helps him without shame without judgment. And just because I know you can do not overcome, but I know mm -hmm. you can lead our people. And so let's work with you until you do it. So that was used in this setting of like midrash spaces to think about mm -hmm. how we already are doing things like accommodation and inclusion in our texts. We just have to find the places to celebrate that. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. Um, well, that is nice. And then I'm going to make, bring it back to gross stuff because oh, no, I, th that's I threw in one nice because we got a sandwich. Yeah, we got a good. sandwich. It's good. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that immediately comes to mind, we're talking about religion and disability uh, in the U.S. context are spaces where <sighs> white Christian nationalists tried to breed out disability in some really gross ways that uh, Hitler, for one, found really inspiring. So I am thinking of communities like the Oneida, uh, it's a new religious community in upstate New York uh, that had very specific ideas about how their residents should have sex and to what end, specifically to perfect human genetics. Uh, I said I was going to make it about graham crackers, and I am. Graham Cracker emerges out of, again, another white Christian nationalist, although not explicitly white Christian nationalist, but um, it's not, those serial numbers are not all the way off. Uh, efforts to perfect Americans. And by Americans, they mean specifically white, able-bodied Christian men and women, especially men, but not only. Graham crackers come out of the idea that if you control the body, you can control the mind. And so if you don't get yourself all riled up, you won't have the wrong kind of sex with the wrong kind of people and make the wrong kind of babies. So just think about that the next time you have a s'more. You're welcome. Uh, the last piece I want to bring in is that these white Christian eugenics trains of thought were weaponized and enacted on the bodies of, of black and native folks for as long as we've been a country. So we see forced sterilization of uh, Black and Native women, access to healthcare care um, denied. And so 
Black and Native families less able to have their own children. This is, it's so structural that it's, I think what we want to do here again is just name it and say, we'll get you some more resources in the show notes. But you need to know that fixing out and breeding out disability is also a race to gender day sexual struggle in religious spaces as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really hard, particularly in the modern era, to talk about disability without talking about eugenics. Yeah. Just straight up. Yeah. Which, you know, we, we see popping back up in times of COVID and who should get care first and how. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. The second way we said that religion matters in this is that people with bodies of yes. all abilities participate in religious traditions and they mm -hmm. are thinking about ableism in their own tradition. So one of my favorite examples for that is that in Islam, salat or salah or namaz is prayer and there's a prescribed physical component to it. So you stand up, you bow, you kneel, you prostrate in a very particular order. But mm -hmm. for eons, uh, elders whose knees have, have gone just like, you know, bring it bring a chair to the back and they make accommodations to do the prescribed ritual motion in a way that is amended for, say, an arthritic body. Hmm. And I'm using that as an example. Like, notice, nerds, I keep using elders as an example because, as we said at the top, we are all living in rotting sats of meat. Like, that is yes. who we are. And so things that we... Um, disability activists for years have said, we all have the potential to become disabled. Yeah. If you live long enough. If you live long enough. And so there's this way in which Islam is already thinking about that. And we see that in Islamic legal traditions, but also like folk and common practices. It's not making a big deal of it, broadly speaking. No one's like standing up at the front and being like, okay, everyone who's elderly and gets that like crack, snap, crackle pop in their knees, y'all come get a chair and hang out. It's just, how else are these elders going to make this work? And God is merciful, alhamdulillah. God is not asking us to do shit that harms our body. So of course you should pray in the way that makes sense for you. Sorry, this is Islam. It's not Catholicism. God loves it when we harm our bodies. <laughs> Terrible. This is a longer conversation. Anyway. We're not gonna. We're like we're just gonna pause on your traumas. <laughs> and I once went to an north. Can I tell a story? I once went to <laughs> yes, an orthopedist in New Jersey. No, New York. Mm -hmm. And this guy was like this big fucking hot shot, and he was like such an orthopedic bro. And if you know what I know, if you know, if you know, you know, right? <laughs> and he said something like, "Catholics have kept me in business for twenty five years because of <laughs> because of all the fucking kneeling." And I was like. 16 or 21, whatever. It was like my mid, it was my middle knee surgery, whatever the middle knee surgery was. And I was like, I don't think that's a, like, I don't, I don't think you're supposed to say that, but I was also like, that's funny. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to that's, do. That's funny. <laughs> but he was dead serious. Like that was not a joke. He was like, no, for real. Like Catholics have paid for my pool. It's awesome. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, yes. So Let's let's keep going, shall we? Okay, sure. So again, <laughs> uh, chronic illness is a thing. Sometimes our bodies are temporarily disabled or we require special circumstances. Even if you're not claiming to participate in disability activism, people have for generations made accommodations without maybe using that language, right? Uh, a breastfeeding room at your church is an accommodation that lowers the barrier of access for all people, right? Using microphones is an accommodation for people who are hard of hearing, but it's also an issue of access for folks with a number of other issues, including neurodivergence, undiagnosed or unnoticed hearing loss, etc. 
this is, I'm going to stop and plug. We get a lot of uh, conversation in conference spaces where there's always one person, and I have been this person, who doesn't want to use the mic because they're very loud already. Best practices for accommodations for ability for access is you use the microphone because even if you don't need it, you don't know who benefits from it. Everybody benefits from it. And don't put the onus on the person who needs help to do what's best for everybody. Anyway, we also see accommodations like ramps and elevators and assistive devices. And all of those seem like they might be for disabled people, but they help kids. They help moms. They help elders. They also just help us not get so goddamn sweaty walking up. Like no one wants to live in a six-story walk-up. No, it's sticky. So that's better. Or like sometimes you have to move a box. It's just nice to have options. Plus, disability isn't always an everywhere genetic, right? So paying attention to things like uh, churches and shuls and mosques, managing amputees and war veterans as community members, parishioners, but also thinking about like theological concerns starting in the mid-19th century, but definitely spiking after, in really horrifying ways, after World War I, right? So. Yeah. So these are not new issues because what used to kill us many years ago mm-hmm. doesn't kill us anymore because of medical intervention. But it means that we need to then figure out how do you deal with a community that um, uh, I once, I don't remember whose article it was, but if I can find it, I'll put in the homework. I once read an article about when churches became miked. So like, when did everybody upgrade their sound systems? And it was really after World War II and everyone was like, yeah, 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 tech boom. And it was like, nah, all of these men came home deaf from ammunition rounds. And so it wasn't just that the technology was available and affordable. It was also a need in their community so that people could listen to the sermons. Mm -hmm. No, that's really smart. Or I'm thinking of, and I'll put this in the the, um, show notes as well, Lynn Gerber's work on the tape-recorded sermons for members of MCC San Francisco during the AIDS crisis. Folks were too sick to get to church, so they recorded all the sermons so that they could listen at home. Yeah. Yeah. Which is to say nothing of like created community, right? Like mm-hmm. deaf deaf communities that have started wholesale deaf churches. Yeah. Um, because the mainstream churches wouldn't or couldn't or refused ASL interpreters. So like you see an exclusion and then you see the creative creation of space precisely to meet that need. Yeah. So in conclusion, not in conclusion, but to <laughs> cap off that section, people of all abilities are doing religion and they're doing religion in ways that serves their multiple abilities. Yes, they are. All right. Our third thing was we care a lot about religion and disability because we are religious people who are also chronically ill or fit into disability frameworks. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Yeah. And this is a thing that I am still struggling with and learning about. Um, in part because, yeah, internalized ableism means I don't like thinking that my body isn't fine all the time. You fucking potato eater. I don't fucking so Irish, Jesus. So like, okay, yeah. Internalized ableism also sometimes looks like <laughs> the family of your birth and or raising convincing you that needing care is a personal failing slash an imposition on the people who love you, question mark. And I'm still unlearning that. But it's also... For those of us who are neurodivergent, uh, learning later in life that things didn't have to be so hard, even if you got through, that has been a mind fuck. The like, oh shit, I wasn't enough of a problem to get help is really still messing with me. Uh, And I still feel like I'm cobbling together 
learning and knowing about my body with the help of other disabled folks because those resources aren't widely available to so many people like us. So that's frustrating. Being diagnosed with MS a month after I defended my dissertation. That was, that was, I'm still dealing with medical anxiety around knowing that my immune system is attacking my body, like literally attacking and scarring my body. And there's, there are things I can do about it, but I, I can't fix the lesions that are already in my brain and spine. They're just there. That's what happens. And some of it is just dumb stuff. Like my ankles are bad and there might be medical reasons for that. And there are some things that I can do it, but like truly any outing with me and Elise can attest to this has to think about, I am at any given point, 25 to 75% likely to roll an ankle. Yeah. So what do it's we horrifying. do if that happens? I, I have to say, I treat you like I treat my kids, yeah. but different. Like the way I treat my kids is at any minute we could go to the ER because they're <laughs> wild. For huh. you, it's like, you, I don't, I've never seen feet work like this and I got some busted ass feet mm-hmm. and yours just, you know what? They just don't love supporting you all the time. They don't. Sometimes they're they like, don't. you know what I need? I need a rest. <laughs> yeah. I'm out. I'm but out. Like mid-step <laughs> mm-hmm. dudes, pick your, pick your battles. Not right now. No, they don't make good choices for me or for them. I imagine them as independent. They seem unruly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is actually, this is a fun thing that I learned. I, I took a class that had a unit on acupuncture in college and the, the practitioner came of in and talked you about, <laughs> I also learned about dowsing. Anyway, uh, the acupuncture practitioner that came in and talked about how acupuncture works said that uh, in modern acupuncture practice, the way that they talk about realigning the energy in bits that aren't working is that they're basically being selfish. Like they, they, they're not doing the best they're not being good communists. They are <laughs> not getting with the system. And I think yeah, about that all the time. Are fucking capitalists. They the are so pigs. fucking capitalists. They yeah. are capitalist swine. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so we care about this because it affects you directly. But also, I think if I can uh, maybe reframe you. And so cut me off if you think I'm being unfair. And I, it's always weird when we disclose that we're like super besties in this way. <laughs> but like, I also think that your practice of religion and particularly the ways in which you do witchy things, mm-hmm. you do so in a way that is gentle and uh, works with your body and its various descriptors rather than works against it. And so I think yeah. that for you, the religion disability piece is that you found a space that was really affirming of your body, mm-hmm. particularly of the way that normative spaces other your body. Yeah. And so I think that's a really fruitful place for you. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also, it's been a fun series of revelations to realize, oh, this isn't me. This is so many of the people I care about, including my religious community. (laughs) Is of like neurodivergent queer people tend to move in herds like dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) We say with love, dinosaurs are fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But like it's, it's been a, a cascading waterfall of having other witchy friends be like, oh, maybe this also, re- maybe the autism, maybe the ADHD, oh, 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 oh. And the overlap between witchy folks, queer folks, and neurodivergent folks is, that's almost a fucking circle, honestly. <laughs> so I was going to say. It's um, maybe self-selecting, but it, it is a space of possibility. And I, I like that and I celebrate that. So I guess since it's your turn, it's my turn. It is so your turn. I, I have had arthritis since I was a kid. I 
have been diagnosed with PTSD and chronic PTSD for all sorts of reasons, which we will not get into. My mother-in-law is deaf and born deaf. My grand, my, my, I called him grumps. My grandfather was an amputee, a World War II veteran, and I have worn glasses since I was in high school. So there are lots of things that I use and need accommodations for, right? Like mm-hmm. we often don't think about glasses because they're funky, but I can't see without my glasses. Yeah, so it's a, it's a disability. It's just a disability that we've normalized so much that we don't talk about it as such. That's exactly right. And it's a it's a common experience. And therefore, we do not see it as the same kind of impediment we saw it maybe 100 years ago when it was very expensive and hard to own glasses, right? So as access increased, stigma decreased. It's also like you don't get the conversations about like, it's your fault that you need glasses. No. But you do get the conversations of like, it's your fault you're failing or it's your mm-hmm. fault you're not doing well in school. So like there's a history, having worked at an eyeglass store for, for a number of years, um, yeah, most people that, are, that would be labeled as legally blind in the world just don't have working glasses. Right. Like it's actually an access and accommodation issue, not a, wow, this percentage of the world can't see. Yeah. It's also, this is a, a conversation that I have a lot with myself and also the internet around uh, stuff like autism and ADHD, but particularly the autism piece, because there is a whole really robust conversation about whether or not autism should be thought of as a disability, because it's a lot about the world doesn't work for you. You're seen as, you're seen as a problem. And if we reconfigure access and what we expect of people in community with one another, would it still be a disability? The way that particularly nonverbal autistic folks are treated makes autism a disability, but there's a question about whether or not it has to be and whether anything has to be a disability or whether we can rebuild the world so that it works better for more people. I think that's right. But I think that where the religion piece comes in is that we have notions that pre-exist our own cultural relevance about what normative bodies are and are supposed to be. And again, we've talked about that in terms of race. We've talked about that in terms of gender. This is really more focusing on the ability piece, but we're not ever going to escape the fact that like deafness shows up in the Bible and it's not really a good thing. And so how do we navigate that is a political project as much as it is a religious project. Yeah. I think I think we're done with primary sources. We care because we live in rotting bags of meat. <laughs> mine just mine's like a crunch. Mine has like too many bones or something. <laughs> you do have way too many bones. I have way too many bones. <laughs> and primary sources. <sighs> yeah, what a fucking bummer. All right, let's sum it up. Disability studies asks us to take seriously that people's bodies are varied in their shape, size, capability, and further asks us to look at the power inherent in making some bodies labeling some bodies incapable, too wrong to be allowed, dangerous, or not entirely human. This matters because people doing religion are doing it with their bodies, and our understandings of bodies are, as you know, shaped by religious ideas, and then often codified into law, whether that's religious law or state law, as we see in the U.S., which has done some fucking monstrous things to disabled people, like institutions for the mentally ill, which were really just Homes of abuse, which included like depressed postpartum people and deaf folks and, you know, queers broadly. But I'm also thinking about the ways in which disabled people are imagined as disposable, Mm -hmm. unemployable, uninsurable, unhomeable, unlovable, and 
absolutely murderable, Mm -hmm. which like we can cite the Nazis, but we can also cite the U.S. government and its treatment of disabled people, particularly black and native disabled people. Like I specifically want to, because this is a conversation that happens not just about access, but equality. Disabled people have to maintain a certain level of poverty in order to maintain access to disability benefits. So tell me about it. I know you know. I'm not sure that our nerds know that like not all disabled people can get married because joint income means they lose access to their benefits. Where benefits is healthcare, mm-hmm. like the stuff that keeps them alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can also think about the ways in which historically and contemporarily disabled people are allowed to rot in various systems of so-called care, whether that's the school system that pushes them through or ignores them, whether that's um, carceral systems where mentally ill people are locked up at a higher rate than the so-called normal average public. And this is about the removal of disabled bodies from our line of sight rather than creating accommodations or creating spaces of inclusion or, God forbid, care. Yeah. Yeah. So in conclusion, we salty mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. disability access and we think you should too. So let's, you know what, Megan? Yeah. You've got some homework. We do what have do you some want homework. homework. Well, so I want to underline again, it's not just that we're salty and it's not just that it's disability. It's important that you hear that our understanding of disability is a religiously informed way of thinking about bodies, whether we are seeing it or not. It comes out of some really messed up white Christian hetero capitalist thinking. The root of our discomfort as a society with bodies that quote unquote don't work right, our brains that quote unquote don't work right. That's not outside religion either. The end. And um, I might stash in the show notes some of the stuff that like missionaries were doing with disabled communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so depressing. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's just homework. assign some work. Yeah, it's time for homework. Homework? What homework? Shall we take turns? Hit it. All right. So there's a Criplet syllabus that's just available online and it's pretty great. And it's an intersectional queer Criplet syllabus. And I think it has a lot of really great stuff that I'll stash on there. Katie Rose Guest Priel's work is outstanding. And I want to I want to highlight exact like the most relevant of her work, but like we'll link to her whole shtick. It's called Life of the Mind Interrupted Essays on Mental Health and Disability in Higher Ed. And frankly, if you are someone who's in higher ed like us, you should read this book. Yeah. Friend of the pod, Kelly J. Baker, has also done a lot of writing on disability, especially on mental health. And one that I think is accessible and really kind of good to read is called No Shame in the Medicine Game. Mm. Sarah Imhoff is another go-to for me. And she's got this, she's got a whole book on um, disability Zionism and one particular figure of that movement. But I think this is the thing you should read, which is why disability studies needs to take religion seriously. Mm. So it's a critique of disability studies from the religious studies standpoint, which I think is really excellent. Nice. Now, I'm only partway through this new book, Megan, because I do all my cripplet stuff like in bits and pieces when I can handle it. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's a book by philosopher Joel Michael Reynolds. I'm going to qualify that this is a dude doing continental philosophy, which is not usually my thing. And his book is part memoir, part philosophy. But what I like about it so far is that it is 100% a takedown of ableism in philosophy. And it has my attention. It's called The Life Worth Living, Disability, Pain, and Morality. Hmm. In terms of, it's like a little bit niche, but my next one I actually really liked. It's by Robert McGrewer. It's called Crip Times, Disability, Globalization, and Resistance. Nice. And not my usual bag. I don't think I've ever, ever assigned a poem for homework (laughs) in anything I've ever taught. I'm going to say ever outside of a Sufism class. Oh, damn. Uh, Maria Palacios, 2017. 
teen poem called Naming Ableism is great. It's like fucking great. Oh, and the last thing I want to say was Leonard Davis's Enabling Acts, the hidden story of how Americans with Disability Act gave the largest U.S. minority its rights is also a pretty dope book. Yes, that's great. a lot. Keep it going. is a lot, but all of it sounds great. I can't believe you. <laughs> Poem. Getting soft in your old age. Who the fuck am I? Huh. What have I become? Imposter. Imposter. Love it. Uh, so I just, I'll add a couple more things. I've already mentioned Lynn Gerber's work, but she specifically wrote an ar- article about being fat in the time of COVID and having being fat be a pre-existing condition that means that you are... Mm, Assumed to be more likely to get COVID, but the you were also facing a lot of cultural resentment about getting access to vaccines earlier because of having that condition. So that was a whole mindfuck. She also has, again, this great uh, project that she's doing on MCC San Francisco and the audio archives of sermons for folks who couldn't be there in person because they were living with HIV AIDS in the 80s and 90s. Um, I honestly hadn't thought of that as an ability disability issue, but of course it is. So thanks to you, Elise, for uh, opening this conversation. That was helpful. Um, I'm also going to shout out Anthony Petro's work in After the Wrath of God, thinking about AIDS in the way that religious communities rallied for folks dealing with a disabling and for many people uh, killing event. Last one, Rebecca Epstein-Levy has a great piece that, again, I don't know that she would qualify as disability studies. She has other stuff on disability explicitly as well. But the first thing that I thought of when we started having this conversation is a piece that she wrote about how medieval rabbis can help us think better about sexually transmitted infection, which sounds like a stretch, but it's really not. Uh, The article posits that medieval rabbis knew that contamination was inevitable, right? Like you fall in and out of ritual purity. So rather than treating getting sick as a moral failing, what if we assume that because we have bodies that are crumpling around us at all times, that we're going to get sick and we plan for it and we make plans to bring people back into community, which I have found really powerful. Uh, And then the last thing that I'm going to recommend, which has very little to do with religion at all, but does have a bunch of medieval paintings that have religious imagery in them. uh, I'm going to recommend Hannah Gadsby's Douglas, which is a special on Netflix. Um, It is her narrating her way through being diagnosed as a high-functioning autistic woman uh, in her 30s. So that has been really useful and illuminating for me and a number of other people that I know. So uh, you should watch it. It is both funny and was really helpful for me. Shout out to Evie Wolf, Rachel Zeef, and Juliana Finch, the KI101 team, whose work makes this pod accessible and therefore awesome, listenable, social mediaable, and among other things for which we are very grateful. Yes, we are. You can find Megan, that's me, on Twitter at MPGPHD, and Elise at P-R-O-F-I-R-M-F, or the show at Keeping It underscore 101. Find the website at KeepingIt101.com. Find us on Insta and now on TikTok. Just juggernauting our way into 2017 drop us a rating or review on your podcatcher of choice and with that peace out nerds do your homework it's on the syllabus what's called high-functioning autism, which is a terrible name for what I have, because it gives the impression that I function highly. (laughs) I do not.